Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the Stud. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. What's up my man Ron? I'm doing great, my man. Been glad to be here as always. And uh, got a little special guest here today, man. Uh, uh, I got uh, Tennessee Stud Jr. here, my son, Chad. And, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, he's visiting me, and I figured, well, what the heck, I think I'm going to get him on here with me today and uh, and uh, maybe uh, let him uh, let him get an opportunity to talk into one of these microphones and see just uh, – <laughs> <laughs> just how just how good he is going to be at doing that. So uh, that's awesome. So right, yeah, you have met him, Dave. Yeah. You, we we met at a wrestling uh, at a wrestling event in the in the Panhandle of Florida. So it was pretty awesome to look up to see Chad. And I did not make jokes about how's the weather up there or anything like that. So <laughs> anyway, I think this is cool because we've been saying a hundred years of rich wrestling history, and the tradition just does not stop with you, Ron. No, it certainly doesn't. Uh, actually, he's been in the ring, Birmingham, Alabama. He, so he's a fourth generation wrestler. Wow. So, uh, okay. You know, we'd add another generation to our program here. And uh, that's cool. So, so right. Chad, uh, Chad's uh, been staying with me here for a couple of days, and I'm uh, really glad to have him and thought I'd get him on the show a little bit. That's cool. Hey, Chad, everything going good? Yeah, it's going great, Dave. Uh, appreciate you letting me uh, take some time on the show and uh, be part of it. Oh, I'm awesome. A Patreon you... member and, uh, you know, and so a fan of the show and get to hear it and enjoy it. Hey, that's awesome. And thanks for that. I know the stutter appreciates that, too. When you come to hang out with your dad, does he act like a wrestling superstar around the house? <laughs> you can say uh, yeah uh diana <laughs> tries to treat him like a wrestling superstar at times yeah <laughs> you know yeah. but i try to keep that uh down a little bit as much as possible for he, sure. he don't put me over much you know, <laughs> has, I, he, you know. has he pushed you chat i mean you're a big guy has he has he pushed you in one direction or another or did he just say Hey, do what you want to do, boy. So find what you love and do that. So what, what kind of dad is he? You're talking about uh, back when, uh, you know, in the early years, uh, middle school, let's say, when uh, is that when you're talking about, Dave? <laughs> well, no, uh, finding a career. 
Okay. Yeah, he didn't really push me in any direction. You know, uh, Ron stayed super focused on his business. And, um, you know, for the last couple of years, uh, when I was a junior and senior year, I was living with my mom out in California. So, you know, uh, he was uh, he was helpful in getting me into uh, Tennessee Wesleyan College. You know, I was able to walk on on uh, on the basketball uh, partial scholarship. And um, and so he was able to help me that way. And then, um, you know, I was able to finish school there. And um, and he's helped me at times uh, getting into regular business, you know, a pool service and that sort of thing. So we've got to learn that business together um, with my brother and. Yeah. Um, and I worked in the, the ADT security business doing installs uh, after that. So we've been involved with each other in business quite a bit. Well, you know, uh, Dave, uh, I, and for fans out there that don't know, you know, I'm 6'9", and, and I hate to say it, he's actually taller than me. You know, I don't look up at him. We're pretty much <laughs> eye to eye. But, uh, you know, at 6'10", you know, uh, uh, I, I don't give him too much, too much problem. You know, you, yeah. you can't ever tell what might happen. But yeah, Chad, but, it seems like he made you work for it on the way up. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. There was always uh, when when I was staying with him, there was always stuff to do, you know, outside, you know, uh, grinding outside, picking weeds, that sort of thing. I think he wanted <laughs> me to have a little bit of the buddy experience, yes, you know, that exactly. he got to have, you know. <laughs> We didn't have hundreds of acres yeah. to, to play on, but, you know, yeah. there was enough around that, hey, get out and do this and get out and do that. But still, you know, we had our fun times as well. But, yeah, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, he was a, a good dad, but I didn't really get to know him probably till, you know, you know, much later in life after growing up a bit and, uh, you know, and. And he softened up a bit, I think, a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's been good to get to know him on a deeper level because, you know, I didn't get a whole bunch out of a, a big Ron, you know, in some of the growing up years as far right. as, you know, hey, we're let's have a conversation, kid, and back and forth and that sort of thing. It's yeah. a it's pretty tough life, man. I mean, you know, you're on the road. When you're a wrestler, you're on the road seven days a week. Yeah. It was hard to spend a lot of time with your family. And I missed a whole lot of years there that I, I wish I could get back again, but, uh, you know, uh, did what I had to do during that point in my life. And, uh, you know, and, uh, thank goodness, uh, uh, he turned out to be a good boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, uh, and a healthy relationship today is uh, absolutely invaluable. But, uh, but I'm curious, uh, Chad, I noticed a while ago, you called him Ron. Do you, do you, do you call him dad when you need money or meet need something? Or how, how does that work? Yeah. You know, uh, luckily I don't need money from the big man. So I'll call him the big man sometimes, uh, Good for you, you know, so, but, yeah. uh, yeah, luckily I haven't had to ask the big man for money in a while, which is a blessing. So have you found his sense of humor? I, I like it. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's quite a bit of banter, uh, yeah. You know, between uh, himself and Diana and, you know, I've been able to experience it some here with visiting. And uh, so, yeah, Ron, yeah, Ron's got a good sense of humor for sure. I think that's one of the things that has really been endearing about uh, our our relationship is we've been able to laugh together and we've laughed a lot. And he's probably and really he's probably laughing at me. But anyway, but <laughs> were your oh, no, Dave, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect. <laughs> I laugh at your horses' names, man. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, for sure. Hey, but that's I enjoy that part. awesome. It's awesome hearing you and having you on the show. And 
And what's the what's the chance that we see you in the ring in the future? You know, probably zero chance, Dave. You know, um, you're a smart guy. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I did one match and I wasn't even really, you know, a huge participant in it. But, uh, you know, that was back in 2001. You know, uh, uh, there was a, a, a match in Birmingham and, um, you know, uh, that Linda Marks put on. And so it was a Terry Gordy Memorial Show. And at some point, you know, I'll post that. I don't think there's been a video posted of that whole show, but I've got that. And someday we'll well get that put online. Uh, that was a great experience. Yeah. Uh, before we go, Dave, before, before Chad um, yeah. finishes here, uh, you know, not too long ago, it was around Christmas time, uh, he and I did a little demonstration, you know, just out of the spur, off the spur of the moment. We put it on Facebook. It was on Twitter, a couple of other places. Uh, and I showed him a shooting, the shooting method, the easy way to get the fuller leg lock. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and we had, we had uh, 31,000 views. Wow. Uh, of, uh, of this. And, uh, and he's here with me again, and I think we're going to, before he leaves this time, go back and, and finish that and show that uh, not just the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the way we put that hole together and what made it work, but we're going to show some other finishing holes out of that. We'll do another little demo that we'll record, and we'll put that on uh, Facebook and on uh, Twitter and Instagram and some of my social sites, and we give yeah. people a chance to see. That that hold uh, the grapevine, the, the grapevine holds that you can uh, beat people with uh, real shooting moves. That's so cool. we're going to do a little more shooting before he goes, and then I'm going to leave him crippled when he leaves. <laughs> and, and Chad, you know he's going to break out the red robe, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, he'll probably want to wear it, you know. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and and let me. I, I want to ask one more thing because, uh, of course, the 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 pride and joy in your life, Chad, and then uh, the double pride and joy in Ron's life is is your son. Tell us about your, your boy. Uh, Charles. Yeah. He's a, he's going to be a special kid. I think, um, right now he's about six, four, uh, 200 pounds at, uh, 14 years old. Wow. So, um, you know, he's going to be much bigger than myself and I wasn't uh, ever really big. You know, my, uh, my structure is more of a basketball player. You know, I've got really long arms and, mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I was never really tall until I got to my junior year in high school. So I think Charles is headed for well taller than, than, than Ron and I, and, and with a lot of size to boot with that. He's the only Welch Charles that I'm going to be afraid of, man. <laughs> you know, I can say that, you know, actually he got his physical done today. He up there in, uh, in Kentucky and, uh, and he was six, four and 199 pounds at 14 years old. Holy cow. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, Dave, I, I couldn't, I couldn't ever get to 200 pounds uh, all through my college basketball career. I was between 190 and 200 pounds, and uh, it just, uh, it was tough to play ball, you know, especially back in that, you know, early 90s uh, at that size. And so, um, kind of jealous of Charles and and his his uh, his potential, and we just got to get him. Uh, Get him in, uh, get him reps and playing up there in Kentucky. Yeah. Is it like feeding a great Dane? 
<laughs> He's got a great Dane Chad, as a matter yeah. of fact. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that him and Charles fight. I haven't seen him fight over food. Yeah. But uh, but he's got a pretty big great Dane. He's probably oh, 100 yeah. plus pounds for sure. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Eating two great Danes at home. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, so uh, well, the. Uh, I guess uh, I hope you've had a good little conversation uh, there, Dave. And uh, hey, I can thank you very like... much for uh, for getting Chad on here with us. Uh, you know, I don't get to see him that much, and uh, it's really great to have him here for a few days. And I felt like this might be great if we get him on here for a little bit. And uh, so uh, we got a lot to deal with today in this in this podcast, as usual. But uh, it's always great, man, to be visited by by your son and. Uh, Wow, that's a, it's a, it's just a real, real pleasure for him for me to have him here. And, that's uh, awesome. You're you're raising a great son, and he's raising a great son with an incredible future. And so, congratulations. That's just awesome. Thanks, right. Dave. Appreciate hey. your time. Thanks, Big Stud, for no, letting me be all on right. the podcast. Tennessee Stud Junior, my man. Ow. All right. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you soon, Chad. Take care, buddy. Sounds good, Dave. Appreciate it. That's awesome. Hey, I want to ask you about the, the all-new Super Studcast number 39. It follows perfectly Super Studcast number 38 by taking a deep dive into two more territories, history. Part one of Super number 39, the AWA territory, the features maybe its greatest historian, and that would be George Shire. So we're looking forward to hearing more about that. Plus, the American Wrestling Association was created by one of the all-time greats, Vern Gagne. His story alone could fill three hours. His AWA was one of the greatest territories ever built. At one time, it covered much of the country, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Denver, and on into San Francisco out on the West Coast. You and George even talk about your only match in the AWA, where you, Stud, wrestled in San Francisco in 1985 with four huge names in the sport in that ring at the same time. That's pretty awesome. And we can't wait to hear more about that. All right. So if you love to hear about how it was done from way back into the late 1980s, this is as good as it gets. Nick Bockwinkle, Bobby Heenan, Larry and Kurt Hennig, Kowalski, Blackjack Lanza, Ken Patera, and Ric Flair, who got his start there, and so much more. So much to talk about, and that's just awesome, Stud. Yeah, man, uh, this is a great one, uh, Dave. Uh, wow. I, I really haven't finished part one. I was really amazed at uh, how much George Shire knows about that particular territory, in which I never I had that one opportunity in San Francisco to wrestle in that territory. and. Uh, this is a really good one. We're going to, in this one, we talk about all kinds of wrestlers and wrestling from way, way back. Luthez, Pat O'Connor. Uh, we talk about some Southeastern trainees that made big names for themselves in the AWA. Terry Boulder, who went on to be Hulk Hogan, was a huge star there. Dr. D. David Schuth became a huge star there. Crusher Blackwell, that worked for me in Knoxville in uh, 1978 and 79. Uh, became a big, big star in the AWA. So uh, it's a, it's really going to be a great super stud cast. Uh, we've just finished number thirty-eight, which is basically about southeastern, and uh, now we're going to we're going to take a look at two more territories. And the first part is the AWA, and the second part is going to be 
uh, about the Sheik's territory, Detroit and Toronto, Canada, and the state of Ohio. So uh, going to be a great super stud cast, number 39. That's pretty amazing. You're, dude, you are top-notch on this. You started out about four years ago as wrestling's great storyteller, doing stud cast, and now you're adding the history of territories from the sports past to your super stud cast as well. I think that's cool. Super stud cast have always been special, but now, just like the stud, the stud casts, everything seems to be getting better and better. All right, we're going to be talking more about this Super Studcast number 39 in the break. That's coming on, coming up. And you can get it today at tnstud.com or we always tell you patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 makes it the best deal in wrestling. All right, what a great opener, Stud. Man, it was awesome talking to Chad, and I know you're ready to get it on. So where are we riding to today? Well, man, we're putting on our owner hats, and we're going to Johnson City, Tennessee, of all places. Uh, we're going to have a few huge night there. Uh, we've got two Southeastern championships that are going to change hand in today's uh, training. And, uh, and, and I can't wait to get, get to this one because this is another great stud cast, man. It is really loaded with uh, tremendous things that were happening in 1977. Uh, obviously, we're going to ride into the week of March 19th, 1977, when Ronnie Garvin is going to meet Bob Orton Jr. in one of the most important loser leaves Southeastern matches ever. And we'll discover the hidden history between these two that we haven't talked about as yet. And we're also going to discuss an unusually good TV. This one is an excellent TV that includes two championship matches recorded in a city other than Knoxville. And uh, we're going to hear from Harley Race. Uh, it's got everything in it. And then to finish, uh, we're going to we're finished with the results of that fantastic card. And uh, you know, we're, then we're going to get the attendance. So then the learning tree. Uh, ask us about how many stations. The gentleman asked a question about how many stations were airing southeastern in 1977. How good were those ratings compared to Knoxville's ratings? And what kind of relationship did I have with other stations uh, than WBIR, That's which was the Knoxville station? All right, Ron, it sounds like another great ride. I got my horse saddled up, ready to go. Her name is Pancake Batter, and she and I are ready to hit the trail. So let's get right on into today's tra training. Whoa, Dave. Whoa. <laughs> what? Oh, what? wow, man. <laughs> You know, I've been thinking about all your horses. They, they've all been about half-baked, but oh, pancake on, batter. Are you kidding? Uh, this one's not even on the stove yet. <laughs> She's a spunky little thing. Listen, I, if you keep making fun of my horse, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to put one of them Alabama dog whippings on you. <laughs> Keep on it, me. <laughs> All right, Dave. I hear you. Yeah. Oh, but but old lightning, he, he's about to pour your pancake <laughs> batter into the frying pan, man. On this one, so you better keep up pancake batter rolling. So uh, hold on tight. This is gonna be a hot ride today. Oh, uh, you don't worry about us. Pancake batter is always at her best when she starts cooking. Let's cook, baby. <laughs> All right. I hope so, Dave. All right, so as promised last week, today's training is about the extremely rare Southeastern double title switch in, in a city other than Knoxville. It happened on Tuesday, March 14, 1977, in the Tri-Cities of Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City, Tennessee. 
The matches occurred in the Johnson City, Tennessee Recreation Building. This trainee, this training actually, this today's training requires the owner's hat. Obviously, only an owner can make a decision like this one. Normally, we never switched any belts in the smaller cities, or very rarely do we even switch in one in Johnson City, where we wrestled every week, just like Knoxville. They got matches weekly. So it wasn't necessary to have a title change in the small city, in my opinion. Uh, that was not run regularly. Why would you do that? Fans were excited just to be able to see all the wrestlers that they saw on television in one night. So we rarely had a championship match in these smaller cities. And uh, I guess it kind of goes back to that old Booker saying, you always leave them wanting more. So every time we went to the smaller cities, we always left them wanting more. The Tri-Cities area was really an unusual venue. It had three good-sized cities within 30 miles of each other, kind of in a triangular shape, as a matter of fact, uh, the way they were situated. The Southeastern TV show was on two of the three TV stations in the area, which that was unusual. You normally were lucky to get on one station in an area. We were on two stations in the same area. We had matches there every week, as I said, and that meant it was a good business to have at least one title change occasionally there. And we had changed the title there before, but uh, never two in one night. So business was on fire there, just as it was everywhere in Southeastern in 1977. Uh, two stud ago, we switched both the Southeastern and the Southeastern tag titles in Knoxville. Robert and I beat the champions, Von Steiger Brothers, for the tag belts. They left the ring bleeding and with the belts. And they, because it was a no disqualification match, they were counted out. We were declared champions. They didn't bring the belts back to the ring. But the belts were presented to us six days after that on the March 11th TV show by Les Thatcher. So Bob Armstrong won the Southeastern belt from the Mongolian Stomper on that same afternoon. And uh, that was obviously uh, due to the major interference of Ronnie Garvin in that particular match in which he basically won the match for uh, Bob and uh, you know so uh, and it was another no DQ match in the Coliseum and uh, those two matches were on March the 12th 77 so it was a Booker's decision obviously when it came time to switch belts but sometimes it was an owner's decision where he would want to switch the belts and uh, usually owners and bookers work very very closely together and the Booker always was nice about saying where would you like to switch this title so as an owner, I had to consider what cities other than Knoxville needed a title change there. Well, it wasn't hard in Southeastern because it wasn't a huge territory. It had one major city. Uh, Johnson City was the only other city that ran every week. So it wasn't hard to decide, let's do this in Johnson City. Uh, we needed the belts back on heels. And uh, that's where they were until two weeks earlier, because when heels have belts, you always draw more money in your territory. In this case, we needed it done quick because Garvin was on his way out and Stomper needed his heat back after losing the belt for the first time since he won it on January 23rd, 1977. And the Von Steigers lost their championship that they had held since November of 1976. So we needed to get these belts back on them. And I decided let's do it in Johnson City, Tennessee. So Tuesday night, March 14th in Johnson City, that's exactly what we did. And this card was such a good card 
that this building was sold out just about every week. Fans filled this building 30 minutes before bell time that night. And outside, there was a line around the building waiting to buy tickets. It was amazing. Gosh, uh, sometimes uh, three wide all the way around the building. Maybe a thousand fans or more were easily turned away. Uh, A camera crew was dispatched from WBR in Knoxville, went up to Johnson City to record what was about to happen that night. And the crowd of more than 3,000, which included hundreds of standing room only fans, a witness, Rob and I losing the Southeastern tag belts back to the Von Steigers. And then the next match, Bob Armstrong lost his new Southeastern belt back to the Mongolian Stomper with Don Carson's help, of course, as usual. <laughs> and, uh, and the fans, they weren't happy with the outcome after witnessing very few title changes in that town. But uh, two in one night was enough to keep them expecting to see another one at any time. You know, and it was always the responsibility of the booker to never let fans have any idea what to expect, especially when a title was going to change hands. So we certainly accomplished it in that night. Not only one belt switched hands, but both Southeastern titles switched in one event. So fans in that area, they talked about that night for years. They also got to see themselves and their city on the Southeastern TV show that aired 11 days after this match, Wow! which the titles changed. They got to see the city there and the title change. uh, And a lot of them got to see themselves on that TV program. And, you know, it was always a shot in the arm. And it was a good way to boost business in other cities to occasionally switch belts there. And even better to record those switches. And even better that, show them back on your TV show. So the Tri-Cities were going to get that shot when they watched their local TV station to see those two title matches and experienced a pandemonium that was absolutely electric that night in that crowd. They saw it right there in their own area. I mean, it's their crowd, their people, their matches, their building. Wow, it's a great thing for fans to be able to see that when they don't regularly see it. Hey, I'm wondering if recording this, the title change, if this happened in other territories, if it was done, like in, in 1977, we know that you were already way ahead of your time on a lot of things. But what, what about this situation? Well, you know, uh, I think we were probably one of the few territories in 1977 that even recorded videos anywhere in their territory, much less showed them back on their television shows. Hmm. Almost all the territories back in those days were doing a basic four-match, four-interview format. They had no personality profiles in their show. They had no instant replays. They had no split screens. They had no videos of any kind, much less special shot outside of the studio. We were doing things that nobody else was doing. And no, that wasn't much of this going on in 1977, except in Southeastern. It it sounds to me like they had something that you didn't have. And that was the audiences that were pretty bored. So, but anyway, so how do you get the idea of shooting matches in arenas and then using them on the TV show. Well, you know, if you think about Dave, uh, you think about how much more effective it is to shoot it. If you shoot a pan- angle in front of 150 people in a studio right. or you shoot it in front of 5,000 in an arena, how yeah. much more effective is that? You know, so those arena videos were absolutely priceless, man, uh, because when people watched all that excitement and these huge crowds, nothing sold your business better than seeing and people experiencing video matches in front of massive crowds. 
You know, I think it was one of the major reasons we were growing at such a phenomenal pace in the mid 1970s. Listen, you were you were pulling the curtain back and it's not something that's typically done. How much were tickets to get into the average event like this? Well, back in those days, uh, ringside in the Coliseum was five dollars. Uh, there was a first balcony section that was uh, closer than general admission, which was four dollars. A general admission ticket was three dollars for adult and two dollars for children. Wow. And uh, now when we get to uh, the next world championship, which is going to happen in the month of April 1977, with me and Harley race, there's going to be the first three rows of ringside around the ring are going to be ten dollars a ticket. Oh, all those yeah. ticket prices will be bumped up. For this big world championship coming with wow. me and Harley Race. Yeah, but the, the thing is, and I, I know you saw this, is here's what you get when you come for $4 or $5 or whatever the ticket price was. And so r- people realize, man, these folks are having fun. And look at this crowd. Look at these matches. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, uh, we were so popular. Things were rocking and things were so good back in those days that I think we could have probably drawn, uh, charged twice that in field buildings. Uh, people were really into it. But uh, I always felt like I wanted to make it uh, uh, so that anyone could afford to come to wrestling. So that's not a real expensive event uh, because uh, we got people from all walks of life in those buildings. Man, that is fascinating stuff, Ron. Okay, so back on the trail. Where are we riding now? Well, we're riding into the Coliseum, man, on Sunday afternoon, March 19, 1977. And uh, here's the card that rocked that building again, man. And we were rocking it every week. And and this is another good card. Don Wright uh, wrestled in the first match against the Australian, Bill Dundee, who's a great little worker at this point. Ron Wright took on big Don Lambert, a big old dude. Another very popular Four Corners match was on that card. It had Jimmy Golden, Dick Steinborn, George McCurry, and Rip Smith in that Four Corners match. And there was a six-man tag that card. Bob Armstrong, Mike Stallings, and myself, we wrestled against the Von Steiger brothers, and they had a partner, Norval Austin. The Mongolian Stomper had regained his Southeastern Championship five days earlier from Bob Armstrong in the match we just talked about in Johnson City. And Stomper, managed, uh, obviously, by Don Carson, would be defending his title against Rob in a no-DQ match, uh, same type match that the Stomper lost his belt in two weeks earlier. So, uh, you know, there's anything could happen in that one again, any of those no-DQ matches. The main event was a shocker. It was Ronnie Garvin, who was the hated heel two weeks earlier. He had overnight become the super fan favorite. And his opponent was Bob Orton Jr., who had only been in Southeastern, this is pretty amazing, for two weeks. And already he had tremendous heat. And, and on all, so think about this one, Dave. In Orton's third week in Southeastern, he's in the main event in a loser-leave town, everything on the line, in a no-disqualification, loser-leave Southeastern match between him and fan favorite Ronnie Garvin. All right, Ron, that is an incredible card full of stars and angles from the last couple of stud casts, as a matter of fact. Obviously, that loser leaves Southeastern match was going to leave fans stunned, no doubt about it. Tell us about that one. I know it's time to do the to talk about the TV of Saturday, March 18th, the day before this big card, but t- tell us about that. 
Well, you know, as always, we're going to we're going to get to the results of that card. I mean, you got your uh, your pancake batter, man. You got it wound up here. Got her wound up, man, and uh, she's trying to get to the match. We're going to cover the match, you know, just like we always do. But, uh, yeah, let's get to that TV show first. You know, uh, just rain in old pancake batter, you know, and uh, don't get burn the pancakes, and uh, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So. Let's, let's jump right into that TV. The TV opened with Les, obviously, in that same as usual tight shot. And he was telling fans what to expect on the show. And when the cameras backed away to the wide shot, there was Ronnie Garden's, Garvin sitting next to him. The studio audience popped, man. Uh, that just automatically proved to me up there in the control room that Garvin was an overnight sensation as a baby face. There was no doubt about that. The huge set behind them was a still shot, a Garvin. He was across the shoulders of Bob Orton Jr. When Bob Orton was applying his extremely painful backbreaker and the Mongolian in this shot was pulling down on Garvin's legs on one side and on the other side of uh, of, the, of uh, Bob Orton's body uh, uh, was Don Carson uh, pulling down on the neck of Garvin. My gosh, man, uh, between the three of them, they were already accentuating a tremendously painful hold. So let's ask Garvin to explain what fans were seeing in this still shot. Now, Garvin was obviously very upset about what had happened in this match anyway. You know, and uh, watch this. He, he didn't really want to say too much. And he was, he was very low key. And he simply said, uh, uh, three men were trying to break my back. <laughs> That was that was his explanation of what of what was going on in that match, and uh, you know, uh, and, and they, so Les Les was sharp. He he sensed that Garvin wasn't in the mood to talk much, and he asked the director to back up the video so they could take fans could see more of it. And uh, you know, when it started to roll, there was a bloody Garvin. He was standing on the top of the cage, and he sailed out and over man and down the. Uh, and landed right on a bleeding stomper, man, dropped that knee right into stomper's throat. The video showed the referee face down, uh, for, and uh, then Les took over describing the action. Ronnie wasn't going to talk. He didn't have a lot to say. The video showed a second referee who was outside the cage trying to unlock the door so he could get in and take the place of the down referee that was laying on the mat. And uh, Carson was right over top of him, and Carson nailed that second referee. He took the key to the cage. He waved toward the back of the Coliseum. He unlocked the cage, and he entered the cage. And Garvin, during the process, had drugged that first referee over to make a count on the stomper, and uh, Garvin wanted to finish the match. He covered the stomper. He's ready for the referee, one referee, either one of them, to count the stomper out. Carson, meanwhile, he took out his black glove as soon as he got in the cage from under his sport coat, as usual. He put it on, he loaded it, and he stood over top of Garvin. There wasn't even aware he was in the cage. And the ref was counting. And before the three count, Carson threw a punch at the back of Garvin's head. And Garvin must have known he was there. He rolled out of the way, and Carson hit his stomp with his <laughs> loaded glove. Now, Stomper's already down. Now he's been blasted with a loaded glove. Oh, boy, the studio crowd popped when they saw this. And the Coliseum crowd exploded when that happened uh, that afternoon. And Garvin went after Carson. He nailed him, and he took his glove off. 
So, uh-huh. <laughs> so it turned out that when Carson waved to the back of the building, he was waving for Bob Orton Jr. to come to the cage. Uh-huh. So when Carson now, uh, Garvin has got the glove and he's nailed Carson with it. And uh, Bob Horton Jr. starts entering the cage and he's behind Garvin. Garvin doesn't know he's there and just like he didn't know that Carson was in the cage. So he nailed Garvin from behind. He took the glove off of Garvin and he put it on and he loaded it. And Garvin slowly got up to his feet, and when he turned around, he turned right into Carson's loaded glove. Orton knocked him unconscious. That was it. He was gone. Uh, he jerked Garvin up, and he and he put him into his backbreaker. And uh, both referees were kind of now up at this point, and they were trying to stop him. But Carson and the Stomper, they just they nailed both the referees, and they went back down again. And it left uh, poor old Garvin in the ring. With uh, on across Orton's Orton's shoulders and Carson and Stomper there with him, and that's where the video had begun at the beginning of this TV. That shot of the of Carson on one side and Stomper on the other, and them pulling down on poor Garvin's body as Garvin is laid out on a rack like a rack across the back of Bob Orton Jr. So at this point, Les turned to Garvin, who had been silent through the entire video. And he asked him if he had anything to say about what everyone had just seen. So Garvin simply said, I'm in this first match and I'll show you right now exactly what I have to say. He got up and he went to the ring to wrestle a great young heel, David Schultz. Hmm. There was no wrestling in this match. Garvin attacked Schultz immediately and the crowd loved it. Whatever Garvin was doing at this point, the crowd loved. He pounded uh, poor Schultz, uh, front and back with blows. You could have be heard downtown Knoxville, man. I mean, he was just laying them in there. Even the studio audience was cringing every time he hit Schultz. Uh, he ended it with not one, but two jumps off the top rope into Schultz's throat. And for the first time since Ronnie Garvin arrived in Southeastern, a heel had to be carried from the ring after a Garvin match. It had always been baby faces. This time, David Schultz got the trip. So Garvin went back to the set for the first interview about his loser leave Southeastern match with Bob Orton Jr. the next day. And uh, this time he's more ready to talk. So Les asked him right away to please tell everyone what was the story behind all the hatred between him and Bob Orton Jr., which was a great question everybody had been wanting to know for two weeks. And uh, fans in the studio got dead quiet, man. You could have heard a pin drop. And Garvin spoke very softly but powerfully and about a friendship that had gone bad between him and Bob Orton Jr. in the Kansas City Territory two years earlier. How they had been very successful tag team partners, but Bob Orton Jr. turned on him one night and he hurt him badly. With his backbreaker, Orton put him in his backbreaker. Uh, He said his spine was dislocated while Orton had him uh, on his back. Uh, But much worse than Orton Jr. dropped him on his head and almost broke his neck. He said he had never seen Orton drop anyone on their head as long as they'd been tag partners before that night. So, you know, Ronnie told Les, he said, you know, I believe Orton must have saved this move for me. Wow. He, he did this to me on purpose, and he'd never done it before. He said he was in the hospital for two weeks, Ronnie. He said he was there for two weeks in traction for a neck injury, and obviously a bunch of observation, a bunch of work on his back. On his back. He was out of wrestling 
for eight months. And he was told by doctors he had never wrestled again, period. So eight months later, he went back to Kansas City Territory looking for Bob Orton Jr., who had disappeared from the territory two weeks earlier. And, uh, you know, Ronnie kept telling the story. He said, you know, I never found I never found or I never heard of him since until two weeks ago when he showed up here in Southeastern. He asked Les, you know, if maybe Orton showing up here had anything to do with Don Carson. But Les is about to answer it. But Ronnie was so into it. Really great interview. He continued before Les could even answer the question he asked him. He went into how much he loved wrestling in Southeastern and what he was going to, what was going to happen tomorrow in the Coliseum, that he loved it here in this part of the country, that he wanted to make a home for himself here. He had been wrestling for almost 20 years after starting at the age of 16 in Montreal, Canada. He admitted that he had hurt many people with his very dangerous knee drop from the top rope, and lots of people had gone to the hospital after he used it on him. He reminded everyone that one of those people was me in the Terry Funk match, and he apologized to me for what he had done that that afternoon uh, for Terry Funk. He said he had been dreaming of the day he would cross paths with Bob Orton Jr. again, that tomorrow was that day. The studio crowd, absolutely silent, just popped on that. Tomorrow, he said, is the day. And uh, that tomorrow, he was going to have no mercy on Orton. He was going to jump off, he said, the top rope into his throat as many times as it took until his head was separated from his body. (laughs) (laughs) And the fans popped again. They were all for it. Then he got up from his seat and he pounded his chest. Ronnie had a big old chest and he pounded his chest. I mean, until it got red. I don't know how many times he hit himself in the chest. And then he said, finally, he said, he promised to all those fans that had hated him and were now cheering for him. He was going to do something great for all of them tomorrow. He said, I'm going to send a coward and a rotten human being out of Southeastern tomorrow and straight to the hospital. Uh, that bill interrupted. He walked off the camera, <laughs> you know, and there was never a moment again after that interview that any wrestler that was watching that interview that day ever questioned if Ronnie Garvin could do his own interviews or not. Wow. Oh, yeah, you just took the words right out of my mouth <laughs> because you and Rob had been concerned about and, and especially had this big French accent. So you and Rob were pushing him to get over and. Man, he has really, this was the interview that changed everything for Ronnie Garvin. He rocked it. He absolutely rocked it, man. I mean, uh, he knew it was all on the line and uh, he wanted to sell that building out. uh, And uh, boy, he he sure painted the picture. Wow. And then then the transformation into the baby face. So I guess you're going to tell us more about that at some point, too. Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) That's. That's awesome. All right. And and listen, I got to say the genius of the, to me, the genius of the moment in the match was when Don Carson is pointing at the back and the crowd immediately knows, oh my God, something's going to happen. You know, just knowing that somebody might come interfere in this match is one thing, but giving them a heads up like that has, the the crowd was, had to be just about, I don't want to say pee themselves, but okay. I just did. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a pretty good description. I'm sure there was a lot of that going on that day. 
uh, it was one of those finishes that, uh, wow, had everybody in the building. Nobody knew what yeah. to expect by the time yeah. this one was over. That one hand motion by Don Carson, just that that building had to be just electric. So that is awesome. All right. Uh, listen, I know there's more to come. Let's take This is a good point. Let's take a break right here. And this stud cast, more memories will continue in a moment. The stud surprised patrons last month by taking a deep dive into the entire history of his first territory, southeastern Knoxville. It was one of the most popular super stud casts so far. He invited his longtime friend and associate in building that territory, Les Thatcher, to dive in with him on the ride. It was a classic super stud cast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This month's super stud cast number 39 continues Ron's reputation as a professional wrestling historian. He's not only diving into one very famous territory, but two. In part one of Super Studcast number 39, the focus will be on one of the best territories in the world, the American Wrestling Association, or AWA, and its famous founder, Vern Gagne. Ron is joined this time by that territory's premier historian, George Shire. George has compiled more history of the AWA than any person on the planet. Get it at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast three hours for only $2.99 they cover the expansion of the AWA across America from Minnesota to California they also talk about the success of wrestlers from Ron's territories that went on to the AWA to become hugely successful like Hulk Hogan David Schultz and Crusher Blackwell to name a few they even discuss the studs only appearance in the AWA in San Francisco in 1985 Part 2 will be released on Tuesday, March 30th, 2021, and it will feature the world-famous Sheik's Territory in Detroit, Toronto, and Ohio. Part 2 has a lot of ties to Rod's southeastern Knoxville days. This is a rare opportunity to look inside the sport at who and what made things happen. Don't miss this great Super Studcast number 39. Available now at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours, only $2.99. It's the best deal in wrestling. All right, everybody, welcome back in. David Summers with the Tennessee Stud. Ron Fuller on another Studcast. Don't forget tnstud.com. tnstud.com is the home of the Tennessee Stud on the World Wide Web. Man, you are not going to believe... You are not going to believe the the photographs and then all the stuff that is so cool to peruse when you hang out at tnstud.com. All right, Ron, if I'm correct, we should be coming back with the second match of that TV program that you were talking about. Well, you're absolutely on it, my man. Uh, you know, better than pancake batter, man. Thank you very much. You know? Thank you. So, so this segment of the show actually started with Les at the set by himself, uh, and he showed an interview from Harley Race the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, about his upcoming world title match. Uh, in that interview, Harley mentioned Bob Armstrong. He mentioned me, uh, at both of us as potential challengers. But he spent most of that two-minute interview talking about the real possibility of him wrestling the former world champion, Terry Funk, in Knoxville, on April 26, 1977, in their return match that had not yet taken place at this point. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was a little unhappy with that, uh, you know, and I was hoping that that wasn't going to be the case. And, uh, you know, so uh, 
And I'm sure fans out there were hoping that either me or Bob were going to get this shot. So Les was joined immediately after this interview by the Von Steiger brothers. They had their belts back around their waist. Uh, they won them back from Rob and I in Johnson City about five nights earlier. And they watched the video of that match. So and it began with Bob, with Rob and the crowd uh, and, uh, and, and, and I, all three of us, me and Rob, we got the crowd involved. And uh, all that crowd wanted to do was give those Germans that old the old up your salute, my man, at the start of the match. And what a great way that was to start a match. And the Germans got very upset about the salute. But they ended up enjoying themselves in this segment, watching this video and watching the victory they got in. So the thing that impressed me the most from this video in Johnson City was the unbelievable crowd noise. It sounded more like 6,000 people in that building than the 3,000 or so that were there on that sellout. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when the match was over, they invited out their partner for the next day. Norval Austin's going to be in a six-man six tag with them. And they spent the next few minutes bragging about how they were going to beat Bob Armstrong, uh, Mike Stallings, and myself the next afternoon. Then they went to the ring. They had a live match. Norvell went with them, and he stayed out there on the floor. And they had a really tough young team across the ring from him, man. Tommy Wildfire Rich, who was really getting good at this point, and Rip Smith. And at the end of this match, Rip had one of the Von Steigers trapped in the corner, and he was just nailing him and the referee trying to get him off of the Von Steiger. And Tommy Rich was crisscrossing in the ring with the other Von Steiger. And as Tommy was about to hit the ropes in front of where Norvell Austin was standing out on the floor, Norvell reached up and pulled the pop, top rope down. And when he did, Tommy went backwards over the top rope and out onto the concrete. I thought it killed him, man. It, it really looked bad. And, uh, and uh, you know, ref's back was still turned. He didn't even see it. So Norvell jerked uh, Tommy up off the floor, headbutted him, and then sent him flying back up in the ring. The Von Steiger brother, who had been crisscrossing, once he saw what Norvell had done, he obviously didn't need to hit the ropes anymore. He stood there waiting on Norvell to chuck him back in, and mm -hmm. he just dropped down and covered him. <laughs> and the referee turned around and counted him out. And, you know, the studio audience didn't like three count, but the Von Steigers and Austin certainly did. You'd have thought they won the world tag title, man. <laughs> they were just all parading around on the outside. So then it was time for our interview. Bob Armstrong, Mike Stallings, and myself. And we went to the set for the for the interview. We're in a six-man tag against the Von Steigers and Norvell. And uh, Stallings remarked about how great it was just to be back in Southeastern. He'd been gone for about three months. I talked to Rob, you know. I talked uh, about Rob and, and getting uh, Rob to the belts five days earlier because of the video that they had just seen. And uh, – and I was going to get even tomorrow, I told him, uh, myself. And then Bob talked about his father's being in World War II and that being uh, why he wanted to become a Marine to start with and then just exactly what that decision meant the next day that he was going to be in the ring with two Germans. And at the end of the interview, I told Les I didn't feel good about our salute to the Germans on TV. <laughs> but tomorrow in that packed Coliseum, I said the Germans and Norvell was going to get a salute from thousands of Americans. And uh, and they, with our studio audience, was waiting on it, man. They popped in. Throughout Southeastern, it had become a tradition since that first salute that Rob and I gave them 
that every time the Germans went in every city they were in, yep. they got a salute from the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 it really worked out good. That thing, that thing was rolling for months. Cool. Um, personality profile was next on the show with Don Carson and the new champion again, the Mongolian Stomper. Carson and Les were sitting in those big old profile chairs, and Stomper was standing behind Don Carson. Uh, he was bending that huge truck shock, man. He had that big smile on his face. You know, nothing made the Stomper happier than being a champion. I can tell you that. If he had the belt on, he felt good. Carson was having a good day as well. Not only had they won back, you know, the Stomper's belt, but they had also gotten Ronnie Garvin carried from the ring in the cage match six days earlier. So Les wanted to show the video from the front of the show again of how they did that, how they did get Ronnie Garvin carried out of the cage. But Carson refused to stay at the set if Les ran it, as Carson would always do. He said, no way. I will leave, Les. You run that, we'll leave. But uh, so Les said, well, okay, how about I run the, the your win over Bob Armstrong in Johnson City, Tennessee, for the Southeastern title? And, oh, boy, he was right back in the game then. Absolutely, Les. I watched that one. And, uh, you know, he had several insults, obviously, for the Tri-City fans. The word ignorant and hillbillies came up quite a bit in no. the last few minutes. Imagine <laughs> that from Don Carson. You know, so, so Robert going down to the ring in Johnson City match when Carson got involved. And uh, Carson pointed that fact out when it was shown on the video, saying, you know, because Robert Fuller, and he liked to call him Robert Fuller, had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> and he had asked the Southeastern officials if Robert Fuller could be the first title defense for a stomper after winning it back. So he also said he asked for the match to be a no DQ and to prove how stupid the Fuller brothers were, Robert Fuller accepted that type of match. So then he switched over to Bob Orton Jr. And he bragged about what a great friend he was with Bob Orton Jr. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he had a lot to do with Bob Orton Jr. being in Southeastern. Yes, Garvin. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was really having a good time. And, you know, he he talked about how, what a fantastic wrestler Bob Orton Jr. was, which was no no lie. He really was a great wrestler. And he talked about how weak Ronnie Garvin really was, that he didn't have any strength and he wasn't tough. You know, he said all these horrible things about Garvin. Then he predicted that tomorrow afternoon – would be the last time any Southeastern fan would ever see Ronnie Garvin. So, as always, Don Carson was really good at spreading around his opinion to everybody Uh and everything going on in Southeastern, you know, and he had been an extremely hot heel in that territory for two years, man. He, He was pretty amazing there. So, third match was Rob, you know, and he had a quick warm-up uh, before the Southeastern title the following day. Uh, he had been talked bad about. Uh, he got the victory, and uh, he split the interview with Carson and Stomper, that third interview, talking about the no-DQ Southeastern Championship match the next afternoon. The last match on the show was Bob Orton Jr., and he punished a young worker, uh, you know, the young guy that, you know, uh, we we had coming in, some of the guys the boys that we used for TV. Uh, he was one of those unlucky ones that ended up getting in that backbreaker. And then he refused, he refused to let him down. And then uh, Ronnie Garvin, sitting back in the dressing room where we had 
monitors and you could see what was going on out in the studio. Ronnie Garvin saw what was happening and he ran into the studio. Garvin charged a ring, but he never made contact with Orton. Orton Jr. dropped that young guy on his head and he stepped out of the ring uh, on the far side as Garvin was rolling into the ring. Of course. So Orton went to the set and he basically only smirked at the cameras and less for an entire interview, you know, Les asked question after question about what Ronnie Garvin had said about him at the beginning of the show. Was it true what Garvin had said happened between the two of them? Orton only kept smiling at that old <laughs> floppy cowboy hat on, and, and he just kept smirking and smiling into the camera. And at the end of it, you know, uh, he had two minutes to talk. He didn't say anything until the last 10 seconds or 20 seconds. He had a few words about Garvin's fear for him and his hope. You know, he called himself a bigger and a beggar, bigger and better athlete than Garvin. Mm. Uh, he finished by looking into the cameras and waving his hand goodbye, saying, so long to you in Southeastern wrestling tomorrow, Garvin, <laughs> just like Kansas City two years ago. When I dropped you on her head, uh -oh. I'll be the new king of Southeastern from here on out. You know, wow, it yeah. wasn't. It was a. It was a pretty decent way to end the interview. Uh, you know, and uh, that boy was going to get be a tremendous star in Southeastern. Oh, no doubt. There you have it. Another great TV run, and we finally found out what was happening between Garvin and Orton. And fans had the opportunity to see three great video matches. They heard an interview from Harley Race. They watched four, did you say four live matches? There's no way you could give them more than that. So where do we where do we get back on the trail next? Well, we're going to get uh, back into the Coliseum on Sunday, March 19th, 1977. We're going to get the results of the card that we've talked about and what was promoted on the TV show. So before we get to that, Dave, I want fans to know that uh, this was the last Sunday show of 1977. We had run uh, from basically January 2nd uh, all the way into the end of March. And uh, we were about to change. And next week, we we're going to go back to Friday nights for the rest of the year. So after this upcoming Sunday afternoon card, we will have broken the record for the number of consecutive weeks in the Coliseum, 12 in a row at this point. So first match of that following day was Don Wright, and he got a win over Bill Dundee. Ron Wright was also a winner, uh, and he beat uh, Big Don Lambert. Southeastern's creation, the Four Corners match, was next. And uh, the way that match worked was a wrestler was in each corner of the ring, and uh, whoever was in the ring could tag out to any of the three other guys standing on the apron anytime he wanted to. Jimmy Golden, George McCreary, Dick Steinborn, and Riff Smith were in this four-corner match. The fans really loved these matches because there were so many things that ha could happen in this match. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were always great to watch. Uh, this particular Four Corners match was won by Jimmy Golden. The Von Steigers and Norvell Austin won the six-man tag. They beat Mike Stolle right in the middle of the ring. And he was teamed with me and Bob Armstrong, obviously. The Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, successfully defended the Southeastern Championship against my brother Robert with uh, lots of help from Don Carson because it was a no DQ match. So, you know, Carson can do whatever he wanted to, and, uh, and he managed to help the Car Stomper get it done. The Coliseum was on fire, though, when the bell rang for the loser leave Southeastern match. Uh, and in this match, there had to be a winner. 
It was Ronnie Garvin against Bob Orton Jr. And the crowd rarely sat down as these two superstars really lit the building up that night. I mean, wow, what a match they had. Uh, and this one had it all. Both of them were bleeding. Uh, Garvin jumped off the top rope and not only Orton's throat, like he promised, but he also jumped off the top rope and Don Carson's throat. And Carson <laughs> got involved. And it's a no DQ match. So, and then the Mongolian Stomper comes to the ring, and he's basically was responsible for finishing the hard fight and Garvin off. I mean, Garvin fought the two of them and uh, jumped off in their throats, and then um, Stomper sneaked up behind him, and so it ended up three on one for the last five minutes of the match, as the original referee was hurt in the first five minutes of the match, and the second referee finally counted Garvin out with both Don Carson. And Bob Orton Jr. lying face first in the ring beside Garvin when it was over. It was crazy. I mean, Orton wasn't even standing on his feet, but he was the winner. Mm. Uh, Stomper had pretty much done had done Garvin in. Wow. And uh, and it was one of those hot matches, man, in which the police had to come to ringside to keep the pan- fans out of the ring. You know, no, it was wow. it was crazy. Uh, Garvin was the last to leave the ring after almost ten minutes after the bell and the match ended. He was there. He was down. He was really hurt. Me and Bob Armstrong went down to help him and uh, fans wouldn't leave. They would not leave that ringside. They were pushed up there oh, back 40 deep, man, just wow. surrounding the ring. And when we got Garvin out onto the floor, we were mobbed by fans. They just came from everywhere. All this covered us up. I'd never seen a baby face get over so fast. And, uh, you know, that includes Dusty Rhodes' turn in Florida, which Whoa. in Tampa, the night I was there, and he turned babyface on Gary Hart and uh, the Korean giant Pak Song. I was there watching that. And I didn't, I didn't, Dusty didn't even get over as well as Ronnie did there. It was just wow. really amazing what was happening. But at the same time now, I'm realizing that Ronnie's gone. It was a difficult thing to watch, especially when the hottest baby face in your territory is leaving. And maybe forever. I still didn't know. I was not sure how things were going to be accepted. You know, by this downer of a finish for the fans, I thought, wow, are they going to just, you know, just leave us? Will they keep coming back? And and for that reason, the first time ever, uh, we shot an interview in the Coliseum dressing room with Ronnie Garvin that night after his match and after he showered. And, uh, and it was all about Garvin having to leave Southeastern. And that interview is going to be a highlight on the next TV show. Well, uh, okay. I want you to take the cat and get it out of the bag. Is, is, is Garvin coming back? Well, you know, I, I knew you was going to ask that Dave, obviously, but well, you know, my honest answer is, and this is honest to goodness truth. Uh, neither he or I knew I didn't know. And uh, but I was sure hoping he was coming back, and right. he didn't know whether he was going to be able to come back or not either. Well, and you you build somebody up so quickly, so you have to ask. All right, so to to be honest with you, Ron, I didn't expect to 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 get much of an answer out of you because you you like to kayfabe us as often as possible. Thanks for that. All right, so how about telling us what what about the attendance that night? It had to be huge. Well, I won't kayfabe you on that, man. It was right there about that 5,500 range, just like the week before, and uh, practically sold out again. And uh, and I was now getting very concerned about this upcoming NWA world title match just five weeks later. And uh, and what are we going to be able to do to get have enough seats 
for, for everybody that's liable to show up for that one. Mm. Not a bad problem to have, Ron. Was the Coliseum going to be large enough in five weeks to hold all the fans? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, in the meantime, let's shift gears or move to another trail. Let's get that cold drink. Take a seat under the learning tree again, Ron. What is the question? And remind us who asked it. Well, learn to a question for this one comes from a gentleman named Trey C. Uh, he asked, how many stations were airing the Southeastern Wrestling TV show in 1977? Were their ratings as good as WBIR-TV in Knoxville? And did you have the close, the same close relationship with those station managers as you did with Knoxville? Great questions, man. You know, and it fits in beautifully with the earlier today's training that talked about one of the stations that we're going to be mentioning in this learning tree. So, Mr. C, let's let's ride into this subject. Uh, your first question was how many stations were airing Southeastern TV in 1977? The answer was four in 1977. One more station is going to be added in 1978. The flagship station for Southeastern was WBIR-TV in Knoxville. Every territory had a flagship station. That was the wrestling name for the station that recorded the TV show. So the tape produced that was sent out to other stations in a manner, in, in a way that was called, you know, I never really figured this out. But uh, they called the, the way you sent those tapes out, bicycling them. Uh, oh. So basically, uh, it referred to the way the TV tapes were moved around the territory from station to station. That's yeah. every territory in the country. Most all of them were producing their shows and studios, and they were bicycling those tapes from one station to another. So let's talk a little bit about the bicycle. So the WBIR, Southeastern TV, uh, show was recorded every Saturday before noon and aired the same day at two o'clock. The tape was bicycled on a bus to the following Monday to Johnson <laughs> City, Tennessee, in the Tri Cities. Uh, there was no UPS or FedEx in those days. I mean, you know, you didn't have a lot of ways to move your stuff, but uh, you know, we sent ours by bus and it actually worked very well. It aired the following Saturday on JHL. TV in Johnson City. One week later, it aired on WKPT in Kingsport, Tennessee. A week after that, it aired on WBFD in Bluefield, West Virginia. And four Saturdays after WBIR showed that tape, it was airing on WYMT in Hazard, Kentucky. Now, from Hazard, Kentucky, after they aired it, it went back to WBIR in Knoxville, the end of the bicycle. In 1978, we're going to add WCPT in Crossville, Tennessee, and that will become the end of the bicycle. Mm. So mm. just to give some comparison to the number of stations my companies were on over the years, Continental in 1960, 19, I'm sorry, Continental in 1986 was on 15 U.S. stations and three foreign countries in the Middle East. Wow. So, you know, we're going to grow considerably from where we are with Knoxville by the time we get uh, into the continental days. So your second question, Mr. C, was whether the ratings were as good on other stations as it was on WBIR in Knoxville. Now, the quick answer to that question is no. Uh, but there's a reason for that. 
So usually the flagship station where your TV program is produced, it was always the, had the best ratings. Now, I'm not as sure exactly why that was the case, but in my history with four different wrestling companies, that's the way it worked every time with every one of them. It didn't mean that the other station's ratings were dramatically different from VRR, however. you know, uh, They might have been just an average of 10 or 15 points lower, but I never in the 14 years that I own wrestling companies had a station drop my wrestling show. I think that's pretty phenomenal, you know, uh, and we must've been doing something right for that to have happened. So, no doubt. yeah. So your last question, uh, Mr. C was about my having the same relationship with all those station managers as I did with WBR. The answer to that one is no Two, my relationship with the other stations, general manager was not nearly as close as I was with the WBR manager. Uh, because I went to see him more and I ran into him a whole lot of times when I was there doing other things in the station. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a very nice gentleman and we had a great relationship, but it didn't need to be the same as with that general manager. Your TV production station was by far your most important one. If they're producing your show, you've got to stay, you've got to have a better relationship with them than you would with any of the others. So, but I did meet, all of the general managers of all the stations that ever ran my shows before I let them air my show. I like to meet the people feel like uh, that I wanted to do business with them and that they wanted to do business with me. And I thought that was extremely important as an owner of a company that you're, that the people you're dealing with uh, are, are happy with you and you're happy with them. Yeah. I tried to see the general managers of all the stations at least twice a year. I met the sales managers and the program directors as well when I had the chance. So uh, thank you, Mr. C, for your questions. And, uh, and uh, you know, one thing I'd like to say, I mean, your TV, your shows and your station you air them on, all of that were critical to your success. And uh, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, uh, it uh, it was extremely important for for Southeastern, it becomes important for Southeastern and Pensacola. It's important for Continental. It's important in every territory. Uh, it's critical. Oh, no doubt. And you knew how to plant the seeds, which is what you have to do. And then you don't just walk away from those seeds. You have to nurture those and bring them up. So they knew that you were serious about making a, and forming a partnership with that TV station, and that has to be the key to success because that's a great way of putting it, Dave. Yeah, the, the guy, it yeah. is a partnership. Yeah, because the guy that's six nine with a cowboy hat just walked in, and he's serious, and he wants to talk about my <laughs> Saturday show. So that you you definitely had their attention. That's awesome. All right, listen, folks on Facebook to become friends with a legend, simply like and follow the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page, or the author. Ron Fuller Welch page on Twitter and Instagram. It's Ron Fuller Welch. The tremendous Southeastern Continental DVD five pack is still available at tnstud.com. Click stud store, only $39.99. That includes shipping, 60 plus matches, a ton of interviews, outside specials, and over 12 hours of fantastic content. These five DVDs are a must and if you're a fan of old school wrestling, you got to have them. Plus, one of the hottest books in America is called Brutus. The man-eating African lion ends up in an American zoo 
and then escapes into nearby Great Smoky Mountains National Park, only the most attended national park in the nation. It's widely compared to Jaws. It has more than 40 five-star reviews on Amazon. There's a reason it's having success. Get it now at Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, or the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get it personally autographed by Ron at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store. It's only $29.99 autographed, and that also includes shipping. The Brutus Experience awaits you, and you are going to love it. You won't be able to put it down. And don't miss the latest Super Stud Cast number 39, part one, now available, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours, only $2.99. Ron and AWA historian George Shire ride into the history of one of the greatest territories in professional wrestling. Find out why people say these Super Stud Casts are the best deal in wrestling. All right, stud. So where to next week? All right. In today's training next week, we're going to find out how I decided when to change my Knoxville matches from a Sunday to a Friday every year and why it was important. That's what's about to happen starting next week. We're going to move from Sunday to Friday. Why did I do that and why was it important? We'll be learning that in today's training. Uh, We're also going to ride in the first day of April, April 1st, 1977. Uh, We're going to move back to Friday nights. We're going to back into Chilhai Park for one week only. Uh, We're going to have the world-famous Haystacks Calhoun visiting Southeastern for an entire week of Battle Royals. Wow. Battle Royal on TV next next show video of garvin's lost to orton and leaving southeastern with the last dressing room interview uh much more uh we're going to see a whole lot of garvin in that match and how he left southeastern also the results from knoxville and the attendance next week the learning tree question is going to take us to two other territories in tennessee that begin their own war my grandfather roy at this point had retired in 1977, and his two former partners, Jerry Jarrett in Memphis and Nick Goulis in Nashville, began to fight for the rights to the central and western part of the state of Tennessee. And this is just two years before Knoxville War is going to begin, and uh, I'm going to have to experience the same thing. So I want to thank everybody, obviously, for their support out there. And All Studcast and Super Studcast are breaking records now every week. I can't thank everybody enough. I have suddenly become one of the most listened to podcasts in wrestling. And and I owe it all to the man above and obviously to those who join me for every ride. So thanks to all of you. Take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. God bless you too, Ron. This is David Summers also thanking all of you and reminding you, Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.